0: Jesus Christ experienced so much, so much in those few days that it changed everything. It changed our lives, it changed the course of history, it gave hope to the hopeless, it gave peace to those who were confused, it gave love to those that believed that they could not be loved. And for the past number of weeks, past, actually the past couple months, we've been walking through a series called The Kingdom of God, where we take a look at what Jesus Christ talked about more than anything else. And every single one of these kingdoms that that Jesus Christ encountered, and and primarily the the Roman kingdom at that time, all of these kingdoms, not just the Roman kingdom, but any kingdom that humanity has discovered or humanity has uh, developed, all of them promise all types of things. They're led by people that promise incredible things, that life will be better, that they can give you this, that they can give you that. But yet, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he was king. He came as king of kings and lord of lords. He did not come as as one bringing in some incredible uh, incredible, uh, kingdom that was with pomp and circumstance. He came in simply as a little baby. And when he came in, the Romans were in power, and I thought what might make, help us make some connection here is to take a look at a couple of these Roman emperors that were on the scene, not necessarily when Jesus was there, but, but they were part of the Roman Empire. We take a look first at, and first at a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. He's considered the greatest Roman, Roman Empire emperor Rome ever had. He reigned for 40 years, and in the process of his reign, he, he put into place what was, became known as the Pax Romana. He provided a road system that made traveling so much easier, and his reign had a far-reaching impact. Caesar Augustus goes down as the greatest Roman emperor. And then there's another individual, and there were a number of individuals, but one of the ones that I, I find always interesting is a guy by the name of Marcus Aurelius. His reign only lasted 19 years and over the course of his reign, he was able to rule wisely and he composed what is still considered, and this I find fascinating, still considered today a literary monument to philosophy entitled Meditations. People still consider the insights that Marcus Aurelius had in that book as fascinating and and cutting edge at his time. So Jesus comes on the scene and it's the Roman Empire that's in, that's in control and it looks like they have it all figured out. Yet all the Jews knew this was that they were awaiting a king. They were awaiting a king that was going to change everything. They were awaiting a king that came from the line of David. And so I want to talk just a few moments about David. David had a four-year reign that, that united Israel. He was known primarily as, an, as a king that, that was a shepherd king. He, became, he came on the scene, really became this incredible hero for the, for, uh, the Jewish people, for the people of Israel, when he took down Goliath. David's reign was amazing. And perhaps the one thing that he was best known for was that he was known as a man after God's own heart. This man, after God's own heart, was flawed. He made mistakes. Yet he was a king that, unlike any other king. And his son Solomon came on the scene after that, and his reign lasted approximately 40 years. Solomon kept busy. He, he wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs. He continued to help the peace of Israel expand, and he continued to help the people Israel grow. And then as his life went on, we many of us know this, that he began to make some mistakes that were not all that great. Yet he was still considered one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever known. And so century after century after century passed, the Romans come into power and the Jewish people the entire time are anticipating a king unlike any other. A king that will come in and rule in a great way. This past week, I received a, a text that, um, that was rather memorable for me. I get a number of texts every single week from, from different people, and, and so every week, and perhaps even every single day, I get a, a text from this group of guys that I'm in a fantasy football league with, and they're, co- they're commenting on recent trades and, and all the off-season moves. My wife thinks I'm a loser because I pay so much attention to it. But it may also be a different text. It might involve a group text from this fantasy golf league that I'm in as well. I heard the comment, golf is a great sport, thank you very much. But I get texts from this group of guys talking about different golfers. Then I'll get a text every now and then from Don reminding me of something that I most definitely forgot. And I could also get a text from a staff person asking for my input on something. A variety of texts, all of us get them. And as I was working on the message this week, thinking about these Roman kings and thinking about these Jewish kings, these kings of Israel, and then Jesus Christ, the King of kings, this text came across my phone and awakened me and struck me in a wonderful way. And here's what the text said. Praying for your sermon prep. I always think that special days like Christmas and Easter could be an extra challenge to pastors to hear fresh words from the Holy Spirit rather than go on automatic. I've told the elders this, when it comes to Easter, if you're a pastor and you cannot preach on Easter, you ought to consider a different profession because this is the day. This is the day that changes everything. And as a pastor, it's so easy. And this is what the text, what I so loved about this text, was the text kept me focused on what needs to happen today. It's so easy to show up every single week and think, well, it's what I do on a Sunday morning. But we forget that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and it's a significant event. I ask you this morning, are you here this morning because this is what you always do on Easter every year. You come to church. Are you here this morning ex- excited about the fact that your family actually dressed up and you can get a family picture taken today? And I'm not knocking family photos, by the way. But what I'm saying is, is that the reason why you're all dressed up today, so that you could, so that you could celebrate we're dressed up today? But I would tell you this, that there is a great, great, great reason why you're here today, and it has nothing to do with whether or not you think you're here just because it's what you do every single week, or it's the only thing you do once a year, or it's the only time that your family's all gathered together and and you look great. But there is one reason, and one reason alone, and it's this, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. Some of you couldn't get your family to dress up if, who knows why, but because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you're dressed up. And by the way, I'm not comfortable wearing a tie. It drives me nuts. But my point is this, is that the resurrected Jesus Christ is a king unlike any other king and Caesar Augustus, Marcus Aurelius, King David, King Solomon, you go through every king, every emperor, every czar, whatever, every person in leadership. Can your king, can your ruler do this? Rise from the dead. Can he or her? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 as we take a look at what these eyewitnesses saw that day. And what they experienced. And as we read through these verses, continually ask this question. Can your king do this? After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became became like dead men. The angel said to the women, "Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay." They came to him, they clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that we can see the reality of the resurrection. Open our ears that we can hear that great story of your resurrection Open our minds that we could even comprehend some of the deeper elements of your resurrection. And open our hearts that we would respond with great joy that you, Lord Jesus Christ, have risen from the dead, never to taste death again. Lord, may no one hear anything that I say, but may they only hear what it is that you want them to hear, that you desire them to hear. And in all of this, Lord Jesus, may you receive all glory. In your name we pray, amen. After the Sabbath, on dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. It's interesting when you read this, there's no alarm clock necessary for these women. No alarm clock whatsoever. They were so excited about what had transpired the other day, but they were devastated Because of what transpired the other day, they were excited because they couldn't get to the tomb quickly enough so that they could properly do what needed to be done for Jesus' body. It couldn't arrive soon enough. Back in Jesus' day, it was believed that the spirit of the dead hovered over the body or around that tomb for a few days. So it almost makes sense that Mary and the other Mary took off and and they got there as quickly as possible because perhaps they were wanting to pay their last respects. And so they get there. They get there and notice what Matthew reports for us. And it's important. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. They went to look at the tomb. They expected to see a tomb, not a person. Notice, it doesn't say that Mary and Mary went to look at Jesus. They went to simply look at a tomb. They did not expect what they saw when they arrived. This is significant because if they had expected to see Jesus, Matthew would have said that they went to go see Jesus. But all they wanted to do was go look at a tomb. Other gospel accounts tell us that there's this dialogue that happens between the two of them saying how are we going to, in essence, move this rock. They didn't expect to see Jesus. In the midst of their lives, in the midst of their harriedness, the last person they expected to see was Jesus Christ. Is it possible that today the last person you expect to meet is Jesus Christ? Is it possible today that in the midst of your harriedness, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the good news, the bad news, or the in-between news, is it possible that you're completely looking for the wrong thing and missing Jesus? They didn't need an alarm clock. They simply went there. And little did they know what was about to happen. Verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. There's an angel, shows up. And I like to think of it as that old show that I think it was Monty Hall hosted called Let's Make a Deal behind door number one. Behind you know you remember that? Or am I the only one that Heidi doesn't remember? Welcome there's a t, there's a thing called the TV. Okay, so any young person's going, never heard of these people before. Okay, so that shows my age. But behind door number one, and then you see this gift, and then Monty Hall would always make this deal of you want this or do you want what's behind door number two? You never know what's behind door number two. The angel came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. In the midst of Mary and Mary going there and and in the midst of them not uh, only wanting to see a, a tomb, imagine the shock when they show up and there is no stone in front of the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. The Lord removes any and all barriers for people to experience Jesus Christ. He does not stand idly by saying, hey, I hope you figure this out sometime. He removes all barriers. He removes this stone so that they could look in and see it's empty. What's interesting is that these guards that are there, these aren't aren't wimpy people. They are, frankly, and and I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but I'll just say it: they're studs. These guys are ripped. They're ready to take on the world. They are part of the Roman army. These guys are not wimps. And they have one job and one job only. And that's to make sure that nobody gets inside this tomb. But notice what happens to these guys when the angel shows up. Verse 4, The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Here's an ironic thing for you. The guardians of the corpse, Jesus, the guardians of Jesus' corpse become corpses themselves because they could not contain the awesomeness of who God is. They dropped over as if they were dead. Dead. The angel rolls this stone away to simply reveal what's inside this tomb. The angel reveals an empty tomb, and this is what struck me this week again, was that the angel doesn't assist Jesus out of the tomb. He rolls the stone away and there's no one there. It doesn't say the angel rolled, rolled, out the t- rolled away the stone and then entered into the tomb, awakened Jesus and escorted him out of the tomb. It says he rolled the stone away and the tomb was empty. There was nothing in there. All that was in there was this cloth. Jesus Christ does not need any assistance in getting out of the tomb. He's not there. Jesus Christ does not need any assistance of conquering death. He did it. Jesus Christ does not need any assistance conquering sin. He paid for it. Jesus Christ does not need any assistance giving you new life. He's done it. Jesus Christ is alive. We can't get past that truth in Matthew chapter 28. We can't get past the truth that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And I want us to consider a few other things. And, and as we look at this, first, this is important. Notice what the, what the, uh, what the angel says to him. He says, Do not be afraid. By the way, that would be an incredible experience. You're two women. you got a bunch of dropped-over, dead-looking corpse or men, Roman guard, laying on the ground, and you're told, hey, don't worry. Really? I would be freaking out. But he says, don't be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus. And notice the next phrase. Who was crucified? First, No one survives a crucifixion. No one survives a crucifixion. The angel states the one who was crucified. That's who you're looking for. In essence, what the angel is saying is this one who was crucified, you think he's dead. The reason why you think he's dead is because no one survives a crucifixion. Not one time. Second, if the tomb was not empty, why did the guards then file a report afterwards saying, we have a problem? Verse 11, look at this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say... His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. If there was not an empty tomb, why then did the guards say we have a problem? Thirdly, if the tomb was not empty, who showed up? to 500 people over the course after his resurrection. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes this, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Who showed up? If the tomb was not empty, who was this person that showed up and 500 people saw him? 500 people aren't going to agree to something that never happened. They just can't do it. They can't keep their mouths shut. So it asks the question, if the tomb was not empty, who was it then that showed up to those 500? And lastly is this. If the tomb was not empty, why did the women leave with joy, not despair? Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. I submit to you that the resurrection is a fact, not a dream or wishful thinking. It has been examined by countless people and every single person concludes the following, that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. Can your king do this? Can the one who's running your life do this? Can the one that you submit to with, with with all authority and you say, I will do whatever you want me to do, can your king, can the ruler of your life do this? So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him. Clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. What makes this story all the more remarkable are who the, the very first eyewitnesses are it's two women. Women are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. In the Roman Empire, women had no say over anything. They couldn't be eyewitnesses. They couldn't be brought to testify in a court of law. They didn't matter. But in Jesus' eyes, these women mattered. They were the first to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I love about the the angel is what he says to them at the very end of verse 7. He says, now I have told you. What's going on here is that Matthew is is taking taking all these people back in time to the Old Testament where they had heard words like this before. Now I have told you. In essence, it's it's the phrase of, so says the Lord. You can find that in Isaiah chapter chapter 25, 8, and there are other Old Testament passages that allude to this. Matthew, now remember, Matthew's writing to the Jewish people who are longing for a Messiah king, and he's tying all of these different things together, and so he does that here by saying, you've heard this before. I want you to realize there's a connection here. This long-awaited Messiah king is the one that Jesus Christ is. So as the women are running off, anxious and excited and filled with joy. They're running to tell his disciples, I love what happens. Jesus met them. You can just see these two women flying down the road, running down the road, and all of a sudden Jesus just says, hey, what's up? (laughs) And they stop in their tracks. And look look at the very first thing that they do. They came to him, They clasped his feet and worshiped him. That's a response. That's a response. A response of worship. A response of, hey, can you do this for us? Can you do this for us? It's it's not a response of looking for something, it's a response that says, I worship you. To take hold of the feet is a recognized act of supplication and homage. That's what's going on here. The two Marys grasp his feet and in essence they are saying, you are the one. We worship you. We submit to you. And I love the fact that Matthew points out that they clasped his feet. Notice he doesn't say that they just bowed down. He says they clasped his feet. Jesus Christ is not a ghost. He's physically there. They clasped They grasped his nail-scarred feet and worshiped him. And Jesus responds to them and says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So I've been asking you this question a few times in this message. Can your king do this? In light of all that Jesus the king has done, and I'm going to give you a list. Just a partial list. Forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can your King give you forgiveness? Can your King give you power against sin. We heard the choir talk about resurrection power. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says this, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies because of His Holy Spirit who lives in you. The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you today in your battle against sin. Can your king give you an unconditional love? Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth or nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can your King do this? Can your King be an ever-present help Psalm 46.1 says this, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Are you in trouble right now? Can your king come in and rescue you? I can tell you this, that Jesus Christ can Can your king provide complete understanding? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, and every person in this room, all of us, have been tempted in a variety of ways. Jesus Christ was tempted in every single way that you are tempted in, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Can your king do that? Can your king rise from the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Luke writes, he's not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Can your king do this? Everybody is following someone. Is the one you're following able to beat death? This morning, you have that question to answer. Because the resurrection really happened. And perhaps in the midst of all the chaos perhaps in the midst of the cacophony of, of noise that happens in your life, you've tuned him out and yet today he's saying, I rose from the dead. Can your king do that? Can all the noise in your life bring back your life? Can your king do this? Rise from the dead. You're following someone. All of us follow someone. The one that we want to follow, the one that I want to follow, is the one who rose from the dead. Because that means He can bring me through anything in life. There's nothing too great for Jesus Christ to conquer. So we're going to pray And as I pray, I invite you to reflect on who's king in your life and can your king do what this king, Messiah king, Jesus Christ did. Father, we pray now in these moments that you would speak to each one of us. That your Holy Spirit would move in such a way that we would say, I want you to be my king. Father, we confess to you that we often follow after other people or other ideas or other concepts that we think will give us what we need. Yet, Lord Jesus, we come away more miserable more disappointed, more distraught because a list of promises again was broken. Lord Jesus, we thank you that no matter what has happened in our lives, no matter what has happened in this world's life, that you came, you lived, you died, and you rose from the dead giving us hope, giving us peace, giving us joy, giving us love, giving us someone that completely understands us. Father, may we turn to you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, do your work. Do your work and rescue us because you are the king and there is no other. We praise you and we exalt you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to stand. We're going to sing a couple more songs. And as the band gets ready, there's plenty to reflect on, isn't there? There's plenty to reflect on as we consider what we've heard today, not simply in the message, but through God's Word and and through our interactions with one another. And we have questions. We have opportunity. And you have an opportunity today to say yes to Jesus Christ, the one who came, the one who lived, the one who rescued us, because there is no other king like Jesus Christ. So let's stand and let's sing out.